Hello and welcome to the socialworldpodcast.com. Your host is Dave Niven. Today's show is sponsored by David Niven Associates. Welcome to Podcast 23. Nice to have you here. My name's Dave Niven and this is the socialworldpodcast.com. Today I'm going to be talking with uh, Sarah Goff. Now Sarah is from the Anne Craft Trust. And the Ancraft Trust is a charity embedded in Nottingham University, and it's now about 20 years old, and it supports the statutory, the independent, and the voluntary sectors from across the UK to protecting disabled children and vulnerable adults. And it's one of the leaders in its field. It does a lot of training. It does a lot of consultancy and advice. And the people there do know what they're talking about. And today I'm delighted that Sarah Goff, who's the... Uh, Manager for Disabled Children's Services there, uh, is going to talk to us. So we've got that coming. I also would like that if you are interested in this particular subject, I am because I used to work with disabled children and families for quite some time and therefore I'm, I'm well aware of some of the issues that are still around and still as poignant as ever. Um, please leave me messages. SpeakPipe is a little one-click uh facility right beside each uh, podcast each blog um, and just leave a, a message tell me what you think tell me your ideas I've actually asked for some um, support for uh, Sarah in the podcast or any ideas coming forward about projects that might actually be of interest to them because I uh, really am a great fan of exchanges of information both here and abroad so it doesn't matter that it's not the UK any of you in any country listening please give us some ideas about some of the projects for disabled children and families, the vulnerable ones, the ones that are concerned with being abused, then uh, we'd love to hear from it. So as well as that, uh, you can leave reviews on iTunes, you can leave reviews uh, elsewhere on the, on the website itself. Just keep in touch. So we're going to kick off with Sarah. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about um, social work in the digital age. And uh, I think that is a packed program. Anyway, enjoy it. Okay, hi. Well, welcome. I've got Sarah Goff with me today. And Sarah is the Safeguarding Disabled Children Services Manager for the Ancraft Trust. Now, the Ancraft Trust is a fabulous organization. It's been around since 1992, and it supports all sectors to protect disabled children and vulnerable adults from abuse. Now, welcome, Sarah. Do you want to just tell us just a little bit more about the Ancraft Trust? Okay, thanks, David, and thanks for inviting us on. Um, yeah, the Ancraft Trust was founded as a result of the pioneering work of somebody called Ancraft, and she worked to try to explore why people with learning disabilities were so much more vulnerable to sexual abuse. And after her death, the School of Nottingham the University of Nottingham School of Social Work within the university um, founded a trust in her name and we continue that work with professionals and researching to develop good practice to support people to try and help create safety and protect people with disabilities and that's both children and adults. Mm. Now, now you're specifically the, the development manager for disabled children's services. Do you want to say a bit more about what you specifically do, what your task is? Yeah, thanks. 
Yeah, we have a range of projects across the organisation. We do quite a lot of work about disability hate crime and a lot of work on training and supporting professionals to understand the risks that their service users face. So particularly for me, I'm beginning to work more about sexual exploitation and learning disabilities. We run series of training courses for professionals, some of them for people to come into the university and some that we write with and take out to individual professional workforces. Um, so I provide quite a lot of consultancy working with big national organisations to help them think through their policies and their procedures and, and perhaps more than the policy and the procedure, the ability of their staff to really understand the lives of disabled children and think about how to communicate and build relationships and support those kids growing up to be resilient. So would you say um, disabled children and adults are more at risk from abuse than non-disabled people? Yes, that's generally the research um, findings that, that exist. One of the issues, of course, is that there isn't sufficient research, but the research that there is strongly indicates a, a significantly elevated risk for people with disabilities. Um, the Sullivan and Knutson study in 2000 was one of the first key studies, and they found that disabled children were on average 3.4 times more likely to be abused than non-disabled children. Now, that finding in itself is quite striking, 3.4 times. And in fact, it's been backed up uh, recently. We think something like 12% of serious case reviews um, that Marion Brandon studied in her recent review of serious case reviews, 12% of those are of children with disabilities. That's and we're a large finding, number, isn't it? Say again? That's a large number, isn't it? It's a large number. And we think that something like 31% of disabled children compared to non-disabled children experience abuse at some time. So that's got big implications, really, for how professionals are able to spot risks, how professionals are able to support children to begin to, to talk about and come to terms with what's happened, and big implications for our ability to tackle abusers and understand particular increased risks in particular areas. There's some quite interesting work around that shows that some children with anxiety, depression, um, emotionally related conditions are more vulnerable to being pushed around and taken advantage of sexually. And that perhaps young people with ADHD, autism kinds of disorders are more likely to experience bullying and, and financial related crime from peers. From the figures alone that you say, I mean, I would imagine that you are really saying that professionals need to be far more savvy about the extra risks that um, are inherent uh, with, with disabled children um, yeah. and abuse. Yes, I think you're right. I think it's, I think it's really important that um, individual workforces think about the particular young people they work with and their ability to look beyond the day-to-day -day needs of the child and look beyond um, the immediate presenting problems to think more widely about the, the developing the resilience in the young person and about making sure that we equip children as far as possible to be as safe as they can. And that, that's a really big ask for professionals who are already very busy and stretched. But I think our work shows that 
we can make a difference if we can raise awareness and and help people to develop the confidence to form strong relationships with children and make sure that we make strong safety networks around the kids that it is our responsibility to protect. Yes, and our, surely too, uh, you, you must agree that it's our responsibility to continue to try and educate as well. I mean, my thinking there as you were talking was that we, we try and teach every child, whether they're disabled or not disabled, about, for example, road safety. That's a massive part of, of children's lives in terms of the safety input that they get. Yet from abuse, I'll bet you that you would agree that it's nothing like as, as significant the input that, uh, that disabled children get concerning that kind of safety. It, it's, fun, it's fascinating, really. Um, we see some examples of some really good practice where professionals start working with very small, very young children, helping them, even in the face of quite profound disabilities, to maximise the ability to which they can make choices. So perhaps if a child with learning disabilities is choosing one red sock and one blue sock, they're, they're making a choice. To what extent do we accept that ability to make choice and encourage it in children with learning disabilities? I think one of the concerns about children with disabilities is the potential for them to be defined by the dis disability and for that to create low aspirations rather than parents, professionals, all of us really working to maximise the development of that child so that they can become as independent as possible. So key themes for us are working with professionals on the ability to give children choices, help them start to make as many choices and decisions as possible, even from a very young age, to encourage their sense of, of being able to, to be involved in, and to choose. And a, a huge area of work for us is, is communication. We see it as the professional's responsibility to learn to communicate with the children. And sometimes children have got very significant communication impairments. But our role as professionals is to still try and get to know them, to observe them, to understand how they show happiness, how they show sadness, to work with them on how to help them as much as possible to feel understood. And that's about professionals learning the child's preferred mean of communication mm. and, and really supporting the development as far as possible of, a, of awareness of the body, awareness of safety, awareness of parts of the body that it's okay to touch and not touch. And you have to remember that many of the kids we work with are used to receiving large amounts of intimate care from lots of different people. So it's, it's harder for them to learn to work out the difference between touch that is being given in care and touch that is not. And so it's really important that professionals think very carefully about how they provide care and intimate care. Absolutely. It must be very difficult sometimes because I know that certainly in um, local authorities when they're looking to support families, they sometimes put a massive group of volunteers together, especially for sort of people, uh, young people with profound disabilities, perhaps with little or no movement, who have to have everything done for them. And th this young person, in effect, then receives, um, wakes up every morning to a stranger, which essentially is almost, you could say, abusive in itself. It's a very fine line, isn't it? Yeah. And I think, you know, we have to look very carefully at the emotional development and relationships and attachments that children with disabilities do form. 
some of them, as you say, have lots of different carers. Some of them spend several nights a week, perhaps in a residential school, then perhaps sometime in short breaks and sometime at home. So they can have very fragmented lives. Those pressures make it all the more essential that professionals take responsibility for somebody taking the lead to have a closer relationship and make sure that the child does know where to go if they need to tell somebody that things are happening to them. But it's also very important that we try and keep as much stability and enable that child to develop some strong attachments across all the difficulties that they face. And these are big challenges that can only be worked out on an individual child-by-child basis, but with some good understanding of some of these common themes. Yeah, I've often been um, particularly worried. Uh, I'm really going to ask you if you still have, we'd share the same concerns, because you talked about communication and it's always struck me that the Crown Prosecution Service and the police, when they're putting together kind of um, uh, cases uh, of young people who are disabled, um, actually wanting to confront their alleged abuser in court, but they have little or no communication. It often strikes me that it's very, very difficult for people to take three, four days instead of one to actually tease out gently the story from the child more often than not, it might just get abandoned because they consider it not in the public interest. Would you go along with that? Yeah, and I think that there is some evidence to, that supports that quite strongly, that it's more difficult for a disabled child's um, story to be told and evidence to be heard. There is work going on at the moment in these areas, um, and I know that there's a lot of strong campaigning still being done and by lots of people to try and change the situation. So yes, completely agree with you. There are me- special measures under the Achieving Best Evidence Guidance and there's discussion going on, I think, at government level at the moment about the extent to which those could be um, adjusted, but it's a huge area, yeah. Okay. Now, the, the other thing I wanted to talk to you a little bit about was, I mean, that there's, I've often found that um, disabled children services is, are often placed under the health banner um, whether they're, you know, based in local authorities, in hospitals or wherever. But, I mean, in my view, I mean, you might agree or disagree, but 85 or 90 percent of all disabled children are perfectly healthy, thank you very much. It's just that they've got an impairment. Um, is that something that you would agree with or do you want to add something to that? No, I think it's a really important point. And what we want to try and make sense of is um, the maximum potential that a child has isn't it we you know disabled children will have ordinary health issues like toothache or a cold like any other child but their disability isn't necessarily a need to be seen through a health lens it's really important that we tackle the um, social barriers to children's um, fulfillment and enjoyment of life and some of those are about prejudice and discrimination some of them are about bullying and name calling some of them are about people not having high enough expectations of those kids. Um, so, yeah, I think they're really important issues. I think the other separation that we have is the one that's between children and adults services. That's a really big issue mm-hmm. because there are real concerns um, from many professionals and families about the kinds of services children get up until 18 and then the reduction in some of those services at 18. And they call that the transition from children's to adults. And I think 
what I would like us to start thinking a bit, a bit more about is the actual lived experience of, of disabled kids as adolescents. And how do we help build their resilience as far as we possibly can so that they can be as able as possible to negotiate safer friendships, think about current issues like internet abuse and sexual safety? Mm. How can we change cultures so that we can open our eyes to the realities of the social, sexual, emotional needs of, of teenagers with disabilities growing up so that we can help them be as strong as possible as they move into adulthood? Well, the other thing I just wanted to say about this 3.4 times more likely to be abused issue is that what that means, of course, is that adults with disabilities are far more likely to have been abused as children and therefore to possibly bring with them stories that haven't yet been able to be told, healing that hasn't yet been able to be done, Mm -hmm. resilience that hasn't yet been able to be built. And I think we, as people who work with those with disabilities need to see that whole life journey much more coherently um, and really think about how do we help disabled young young adults become as resilient as possible. Okay, well, can I just take two or three things that you mentioned in, in that there? That the, um, going back to the school, going back to the um, transition you talked about. Yeah. Um, because as far as I understand it still, it, it, it's age 14 that the school has a statutory duty to actually implement a transition planning meeting and then invites other agencies in. Now, at that meeting, I, it, it just brings the whole question to me. I'm not sure these days, integration or non-integration, you know, what's the actual kind of received thinking at the moment as far as you can pick up? Because it seems to have sort of seesawed over the years in terms of, you know, should we have uh, specifically set aside schools for children who've got particular disabilities or should we try and integrate as much as possible? How do you think that argument's going first? I think it's a complicated one and that different children suit different resources better um i'm not not sure it's that easy to generalize Mm. for some young people it's really important to be with other young people with disabilities in very small class environments and have much greater attention and education design around their special needs for others um they feel more comfortable in the integrated settings benefit from those friendships and relationships um, and I, I, I really think it's about planning properly for an individual child. Okay, yeah, I just think the line of thought I had when you were speaking there was a bit about how disabled children are being treated, especially those with learning difficulties in mainstream school when you look at issues such as cyberbullying. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry that the the general education issues are not really my field, which is much more for me about safeguarding. But I think you're absolutely right to raise the issues of of bullying and cyberbullying. I think we know that there exist very high levels of bullying of children with disabilities. 
And when we're looking at harm and violence and aggression towards children with disabilities, we have to think about peer groups and and, and the internet as well. Mm. And managing internet safety for children with learning disabilities is something that we really do need to make sure is considered individually for each child about how they're supported to have the many benefits of the internet, but safely and how their parents understand their needs and the, the use of the systems. Yeah, they're very, very big issues. Mm. I, I mean, and we have to accept, given the figures that you said earlier on, that I must admit I've heard as well, to do with the actual percentage of disabled children who are victims of abuse as opposed to non-disabled children as the factor of three, I think you said, something like that. Yeah. So can't we, you know, I mean, we, we've not really, even with the 20 years or so of Anne Craft Trust and others, you know, really coming on very strongly and very well about the rights and responsibilities and the needs of the safety of disabled children, we still don't seem to have moved very far in terms of the numbers that we can protect. Is, is that a fair comment? I think it is fair. And I think that there are some real issues about the extent to which local safeguarding boards and social care departments around the country are actively using the guidance that, that was released in 2009 for all agencies to support them in safeguarding disabled children. Really detailed piece of guidance that was written on the basis of, of recognition um, that professionals were not always recognising signs and symptoms of abuse. I think it's, it remains very clear, Ofsted in 2012 produced a report about the neglect of disabled children. Well, it was a, a report about the abuse of disabled children and child protection issues. But within that report, one of the things that was found was that workers were less likely to pick up signs of neglect. And there are lots of questions about that and some real pressures for parents and workers, but some questions about whether workers feel able to challenge parents of children with disabilities and whether signs of neglect are picked up as, as astutely as they are with other children. I think we're fairly clear too that not all safeguarding boards around the country have very active um, disabled children subcommittees and working groups and multi-agency safeguarding training. And I think that those are areas that we would like to see renewed and vigour into. There is much, much, much good practice and many very well-meaning local authorities with really good resources. And I think that's it's practice that we want to continue to grow in terms of awareness at all levels, really. Frontline workers, management and senior management and safeguarding board levels. There are projects, obviously, out there that are doing some terrific work that probably yes, there a, are. a lot of places could actually do with having a good look at. Yeah. Just, just, just a quick question out of curiosity, because I don't, I don't know if it's something you're aware of, but um, the, this broadcast actually does go out to, to many countries. And I just wondered if you had ever noticed anything of, you, of other projects going on in other parts of the world that you really would love to translate back here. And, and try and see if it worked in, in the UK? Or alternatively, is that something you'd love the time to be able to do? I think it's something I'd absolutely love the time to do. Um, we do a great deal of development work with organisations around the country, but I haven't had time yet to start looking uh, to colleagues abroad for, for, for ideas from them, but I'm sure that they will exist. Just as, as you very rightly say, there are some 
excellent projects around this country doing some very forward thinking and enabling work with young people and their parents. Because it always strikes me, I mean, not, not just necessarily in this particular area, although it's obviously true as well, but there's no need to reinvent the wheel sometimes, is there? Um, no, if there's, if there's evidence of something working. And one of the areas that we're very keen to look at in much more depth is is the area in terms of risk of sexual exploitation. It's mm-hmm. been a big national discussion recently. We've done quite a lot of work, um, particularly Rachel Clawson, in terms of forced marriage um, of young people with learning disabilities. You've got to put me up on that, haven't you? We've, sorry? You've got a conference coming up on that soon, haven't you? There's a conference coming up on that uh, fairly soon, yes. Um, and we're, we're very concerned about young people with learning disabilities in, in that setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other area that we're very keen, as are many other colleagues around the country, to look at is that of sexual exploitation and the extent to which young people, either with learning disabilities or with other issues in terms of confidence, self-esteem, are able to um, to manage safe choices about relationships, consent, sex. These things are difficult enough for all teenagers. But I think we are particularly concerned about vulnerability um, to abuse and risk of some of the young people we work with. And that's one of the areas that we're trying to develop um, practice in. Well, I think that um, the evidence of all these recent trials that were involved with street grooming and um, the sexual exploitation of young people um, that we've all seen in recent trials just illustrated that because several of these young people uh, did have learning difficulties and therefore appeared to be particularly vulnerable to make your point. Mm. I think one of, the, one of the issues about learning disabilities is that they're not visible and for some young people, they can appear to be absolutely fine, but actually be experiencing significant difficulties in, 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 in understanding and making sense of the relationships that they're getting caught up in. And, and that can apply to all of us, can't it, as teenagers? It's a, a challenging time learning to make safe choices about your life. Um, but we think possibly with, with significant extra complicating factors for the young people with learning disabilities, so both in terms of the internet and in terms of actual contact uh, relationships in, you know, physical reality, we think that there are very big issues to address there. Okay. Well, look, just as a sort of a final summing up, Sarah, I mean, I know that um, you, on behalf of Ancraft, are going to do some training for us, for David Niven Associates, um, and also you obviously offer a, a great training portfolio yourselves, I mean, along the lines of most of the things that you've talked about. But if you had to put a message out just finally here to people who are involved working with um, children who've got disability, what what would you say in terms of safeguarding that, that would be the key messages that you want them to remember? And, and maybe just finally, too, if any of people are listening, whether it's in different parts of the world or whether different parts of the UK, I mean, please send in your comments and thoughts and I'll make sure that I pass them on to uh, Sarah and to the Ancraft Trust afterwards and just in case that helps your research. So what would your final messages be, Sarah? I think um, above all the need to form relationships and communicate with children with disabilities. They they need us to spend time to, to observe, to get to know, to have fun, to play, to talk with them. 
we want to develop their confidence and their social confidence. So it's professionals' responsibility to learn to communicate in the style that those kids need. And if we give kids um, language systems, pictorial, computer-based symbols, it's important that those symbols and systems are reviewed and grow up with the child so that the vocabulary expands as that child gets older. Mm -hmm. um, it's no good having computer systems that are all about sunshine and happy days if the child's actually sad and distressed and needs to tell us that. So it's about working with the child to support them in being able to communicate well. And I think the other big thing is that we need to support parents enormously, but we also need to remember to retain the ability to think critically about the care of the child and work out if we do think a child's at risk, how do we ask the right questions to make sense of it? And we shouldn't be afraid to to ask questions and keep an open mind. Um, oh. So I think probably those two things really, keeping an open mind and positive relationships and making sure kids know how they can get help if they need to or if they can't we are very observant about changes in them and indications that they might not be okay. Well, thanks, Sarah. That was a pleasure having you on the programme and I wish you and the Ancraft Trust well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, David. Well, I think that was great there, what we got from Sarah. I mean, she's steeped full of experience and some very, very good uh, ideas there. A lot to digest. But, like I said at the beginning, there must be lots of you out there that are either working with or involved in some way with um, disabled people, young people, and also come across a lot of them that, uh, unfortunately, have been the victims of abuse. So, get in touch. Let us know what you're doing. We'll try and spread the word as much as we can. I'll pass stuff on to Sarah, but as much as anything else, I'd love to see a dialogue between those of you who are listening. So thanks again. Now, the digital age. Well, I was um, looking at uh, something in The Guardian online today that was actually talking about um, the future, the benefits of learning social care uh, the digital way. In other words, the fact that the future really is digital and the way we deliver services, uh, social workers deliver services, the way that uh, the social care world actually operates is going to be so influenced and the pace of change is going to be so great that I just wonder if we're ready for it. And I wonder, more importantly, if those that we care for in the community are ready for it. Now, when I was up, as I said in last week's podcast at the uh, Compass Jobs Fair there, we, I, I talked to several people who were involved with disability issues and some designing hardware, some designing some fantastic eye recognition work, uh, um, hardware for, for, for people with visual impairment. I mean, it's just, it's happening out there. You know, technology is now threading its way through the social care world. I had a look at some various things there, including... Um, including in-house surveillance techniques, you know, to pick up uh, staff that weren't doing their job properly. I looked at um, the latest kind of medication dispensers, the, the latest alarms for picking up, you know, sensory surround systems in, in, in smart houses that uh, could really, really help those on the borderline of looking after themselves just make it. And that's terrific, you know, and actually empowering a whole new group 
of um, service users by technology allowing them to have that little bit feeling that feeling that little bit more independent there was uh, a new thing a tap tap c that was called a visual uh, an iphone app for the blind and visually impaired where literally you just took a photo of an object and it said not only what it looked like what it was what it was made of but what it said on it and i think that was just fantastic of course, we've got the glasses from Google, you know, with the inbuilt computer and the glasses and probably eye recognition sort of stuff that uh, command, I command software. That's coming. I mean, and to be honest with you, I wouldn't be at all surprised if in a generation or so we were all talking about implants, you know, just behind the ear, won't look out of place, you know, just a little bump, but it could help you control anything you want, maybe the computer and your watch. So what we've got to be a bit cautious about, obviously, then, is are we going to be compromising any social work principles? So the Code of Ethics actually says, very importantly, how we should actually conduct our professional lives as social workers. Personally, I, I do think there's a bit of a dilemma because uh, one of the imperatives, if you like, in social work is see the person that you're working with. See the child, see the vulnerable adult, see them, make your own on-the-spot assessment. And yet, increasingly I hear of, I hear talk of visits possibly being conducted by Skype. Now, Skype's a wonderful thing, and it's certainly a terrifically, a terrific tool, if you like, for um, the frail uh, and the elderly who have got little or no mobility to to be able to talk as live to uh, relatives anywhere in the world and family and, and just keep that little bit of electricity going. I, I think that's a wonderful tool for that. But I'm not so sure if it would be a substitute for an important visit and an important assessment of somebody's needs. So there's a whole raft of questions that it brings with it. Then... There's that fantastic technology I talked about a few a few clogs back, but uh, just the whole business about um, picture recognition, how to actually find victims uh, in pictures, because as we all know, for example, in paedophile rings, they collect tens of thousands of pictures of young people, and um, very often than not, we're not able to identify where they come from. Now, millions is being poured in by Euro, uh, Europol to uh, two or three pilot countries to actually develop further recognition software so good luck to them one of them I believe is Iceland which um, I must look into a bit further apart from that we're looking at the social networking and support communities that's what the digital era is bringing us the way that we can actually have care all surrounding one person who's particularly needy but they can talk to each other in a community of practice they can share things, they can talk about medication, they can just check out, they can actually have video recognition if they are, if they need to. So generally, um, a very good thing in some ways, but we've also got to be very cautious. And that'll bring up the whole part again I mentioned about whether you call it spying or whether you call it prudent watching uh, of people who are considered to be a risk. So for example, if adults are considered to be a risk to a child in a particular household, do you monitor as social services, do you monitor 
their um, social networking sites, uh, the public part of it in a way. I think there's quite an argument that that would um, reap quite a lot of rewards in terms of information that might just help you prevent some abuse. But on the other hand, uh, the Code of Ethics and Social Work um, determines or actually is almost as an imperative, if you like, to um, respect the privacy of the client, respect the human rights of the client. So you've got a bit of a dilemma there between protecting the vulnerable and essentially spying on people or respecting human rights and taking a chance, taking a risk that not doing all you could could hurt somebody badly. Anyway, I think it was a very good article today and it's very provocative and um, there's a group actually being formed as well um, with various uh, uh, national bodies to look at uh, a national digital working, learning and information strategy. So I hope they do come up with something useful. Well, that's it really for today. I was delighted to have that interview with Sarah Goff. I hope that was uh, interesting for you. Um, I hope that the, the the social care in a digital age, um, the debate here is something that's going to continue. And so I hope you'll get back to me about your ideas about it. Good, bad, indifferent, cure its egg, good in parts. What? Tell me. And um, I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you very much indeed for listening. See you then. <laughs>